You're listening to a message from Severe Heights. To learn more about us, go to www.severeheights.org. Well, as Corey said, tonight's going to be very significant. Um, you know, we're praying for last semester as we started, we, we had 2,000. We're praying for 2,500. And tonight, our, our whole goal, every, every year we have a goal for this first one, and that is to get them back. And God has uh, blessed incredible ways because of efforts like Kari. One of the things that you guys probably don't know about Kari, I'm just going to tell you, uh, the guy tells everybody he can about Jesus one-on-one. And the, the vast number of these students that are trusting Christ are getting discipled uh, by Kari in a powerful way. So he can tell stories like that left and right. Now, he said he's excited about tonight. A lot of us are excited. I'm a nervous wreck. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, we started over 15 years ago with, you know, 50 students. And, and now it is what it is. And I'm getting older. And it's... Um, more and more difficult, but at the same time, it's just special. Now, I want to tell you something. Sully, I don't know if you know this or not, but the vision that we embraced as we started that has leaked into Severe Heights as a whole. And what I'm going to begin to share today is just a tease of a series that will give you more of an idea of what's so vitally important that the church understand. I want to begin with this. One of the most amazing things about Jesus and the time that he spent on earth is even though Jesus was religious, he didn't spend all of his time with religious people. As a matter of fact, he spent a lot of time with non-religious people. And even though Jesus was righteousness with skin on, all right, he spent an enormous amount of his time with unrighteous people. And you think about it even further, even though Jesus came from God, He didn't spend all of his time pursuing relationships with godly people, which is kind of odd if you think about it. Because you think the most religious, the most righteous, the most godly person on the planet would spend all of his time with religious, righteous, and godly people. In fact, the opposite is true. When Jesus showed up in the first century, the most non-religious, the most unrighteous, the most ungodly, they actually loved spending time with Jesus. And when he would talk with them, even though he was in a completely different category, understand something about the the dialogue that they would have with Jesus, they were not intimidated. And even though they knew that, that he was a different category, they could often think, if he only knew what I did last year, last semester, last month, last week, or even last night, I don't think that he would talk to me. But when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you find out that this, this type of people, uh, they would come out of the woodworks to spend time with Jesus, to be with Jesus, and to hear him teach. Now, I'm telling you, it's crazy because you'd think the most religious, righteous, and godly person to show up would primarily attract the most religious, righteous, and godly people in the community. Not only that, but the ones that considered themselves the most religious, the most righteous, and the most godly in the community. You know, the ones that are safe, secure, they're obedient, they prayed the prayers, Um, they know the verses, they've memorized the stories. What's crazy about them, they continued to be bothered that Jesus spent so much time seeking the non-religious, the non-righteous and the ungodly. Now, I'm going to tell you from my heart, 
The reason this is so intriguing and such a significant deal to me is because all across the city, all across the state, all across the United States, the world, the most religious, the most righteous, the most godly are at church on Sundays. And the most ungodly, unreligious, unrighteous stay away. Some of you are thinking, okay, Tim, so so what's the big deal? Why does this bother you? Well, consider this. When you read the New Testament, the local church is a gathering to reflect Jesus. We are his hands, his feet, his eyes, his ears. And so when people come to see this gathering, they need to see a reflection of Jesus. And I want to tell you from the bottom of my heart, it's why I've devoted the rest of my life on this earth to be riveted on this. Because for some reason, we don't have the same effect on the non-religious, unrighteous, and ungodly together that Jesus did. This is not an indictment. It's just a fact. So many don't like the local church. They haven't even tried the local church. Maybe they don't go to church actually because they've been to church. And they did not see a connection between Jesus and this body that is here to reflect him. So I want to ask it a few ways. What is it about Jesus that made the non-religious, the unrighteous, and ungodly so attracted to him? What is it about the non-religious, the unrighteous, and ungodly that made Jesus want to spend so much time with them? Here's probably the best way of asking it. How did Jesus, the only perfect person in all human history, manage to always attract notoriously imperfect people. This might surprise you, but I am far from perfect, even as a pastor. And it's funny because I want people that are far from God to enjoy spending time with me, Uh, even if we don't agree. Something I've learned over time, and I hope you embrace this, you don't have to be right or prove yourself right to be relational. You don't. There can be disagreement and you still build relationships with people. And I realize that for people that are far from God, uh, disconnected from the local church, they have assumptions about pastors. Uh, They've been told stories about pastors. They've had their bad pastor experiences or pastors have done stupid things. Uh, I told this story last week and periodically I'll tell you other ones where I met the gentleman on the golf course and he asked the question, you know, what do you do? And pastor comes out, work at a local church, and it's like breaks, awkward, you know, screech, skid marks, music's down, cussing stops. Like, like I live with this. Uh, You giggled last week, but it happens every week if I go anywhere and have any kind of conversation. And I have a desire for those people to still be at ease around me. So some of you know I've got some crazy hobbies that I'll do periodically. Like this week, uh, dove season opens on Friday, so hopefully I'll go do dove hunting with some guys, or I like to fly fish. Um, I like to play golf. So periodically, if I'm with people outside the church, and let's say I miss a dove, or I miss a fish, or I hit a bad golf shot, and everyone's looking at me, like, I'll cuss. I'm just kidding. I don't. (laughs) But let me tell you why. It's because I don't miss dove, I don't miss fish, and I don't hit bad (laughs) golf shots. All right? But in all seriousness, on behalf of this, I recognize the tension between a follower of Jesus. <laughs> How about this? You don't get this. But a guy that's paid 
to be a Christian. That's what people think. A guy that is, you know, hired on staff at the local church. I get the tension between those far from God and followers of Jesus. And I'm going to tell you, if we, if you and I collectively could only wrap our brain around what we see with Jesus and we've been called to reflect him, we have to get riveted to the question, how did Jesus, the only perfect person in all of human history, manage to always attract notoriously imperfect people? And as we examine this question for the weeks to come, to the degree that this service, the next service, and the following service are willing to embrace the answer, it will determine the impact we will have on this city throughout eternity. And by the way, I know you're here. If you're in the room today, if you consider yourself a non-religious, unrighteous, or ungodly person, you go back to the first century and you saw Jesus in the eyes, you would have liked Jesus. And I know you've heard a million times that Jesus loves you. I want to take it even further. Jesus would have liked you. It's what we see in the gospel accounts. The next few weeks are a chance as we look at the same story together for you to understand why Jesus not only loves you, but he likes you. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke was a doctor and did lots of research. Lots of research examining the eyewitness accounts on the life of Jesus as he walked on the planet Earth. His book is an orderly account of those stories. You can read that at the beginning. Luke 15 gives us details on an interaction that Jesus had with the non-religious, the unrighteous, and the ungodly. And the response of the people that thought they were godly, righteous, and religious because they were bothered that Jesus is spending time with people that are nothing like Jesus. And in typical Jesus fashion, Jesus begins with a series of parables in this chapter. Uh, parables are kind of a unique way of answering their question, but in a way where they're going to be forced to figure out the answer themselves. And so we begin Luke 15, 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. By the way, I love this. You see it all right off the bat. I can't help but think about the possibilities of those far from God loving to be at the local church. In this verse, on behalf of the tax collectors and sinners, you got to understand in the first century, uh, Jewish culture, they had all these kind of charts on good behavior and how well people were in the eyes of God. So, so the Pharisees, like they were the extra elite there at the top. And you had the average people about right here. Uh, then you had the sinners. Sinners were people simply that, that rejected God, that turned their back on God. And then you had by themselves, the tax collectors. They were at the bottom rung. They were the lowest class of sinners. They had their own category. So if you were a sinner, you could at least go to bed at night and think, well, at least I'm not a tax collector. That's the way the first century had it set up. Um, tax collectors were traitors. They had betrayed their own people, and they did it for their own pocketbook. They tag-teamed with Rome, took advantage of their own people by taxing them and taking advantage of them for their own benefit. Now, keep in mind, according to the text, the tax collectors and sinners are sitting there listening to Jesus. Verse 2, with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they muttered. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. 
The Pharisees are the religious, the ones that considered themselves righteous and godly. These are the ones that Jesus should have been spending most of his time with. Uh, When you press into the Pharisees, you find out there's a thinking that they thought they could earn their way to heaven. They're bothered because Jesus is spending time with sinners and then the tax collectors. Like, he actually goes to their homes. He has fun with them. He has meals with them. And remember, meals were very meaningful to Jesus. Uh, The Pharisees have a question. They want to know what you and I want to know. Why? And if you know much about Jesus and you read the gospel accounts, you find out people don't have to ask their questions out loud, right? When you read the gospel accounts, the Bible lets us know that he knows the heart of man. So Jesus could vocalize what's going on in your heart by looking into your eyes. And what Jesus says next should challenge everyone in this room at the core. Whether you consider yourself righteous, religious, godly, or not. Jesus told them a parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And everyone in the audience is thinking, yep, we had a hundred. If we lost one, we're going to do whatever it takes to find the one. Verse 5, and when he finds it, Jesus says, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together. He says, guys, rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. And everyone, once again, is nodding. Yep. That's exactly what we would do. So Jesus is establishing a fundamental principle that all of us need to understand. Easy to understand. When you lose something, you focus on what's lost. Everybody in this room can think of something valuable that you've lost. And when you lost it, you focused hard to find it. Uh, Years ago, I hate telling this story, but years ago, I received a very nice watch from two great friends. And um, two last year, like it was one of those watches I didn't want to wear in public. I didn't want people to see. It was just a gift that it was very special. And uh, I put it up in a drawer. And then last year, I brought it out again and started wearing it. And there was a day, I hate to tell you this, I lost it. And I went to Jenny kiddos. I said, guys, y'all seen this? I'm like, no. Can you imagine what it would be like if Jenny said, well, Tim, it's all right. Um, your phone's got a clock on it. Or Tim, when you get in the house, like, like as soon as you walk in that back door, you look left, there's a clock on the wall. Tim, uh, you go to the kitchen. Uh, there's one on the microwave and on the oven. You can just peek at those times. You're, you're going to be good to go. No, that didn't stop me from looking. No, I I forgot all about everything, and we focused in hard on what's lost because when Jesus makes a statement, you and I understand when you lose something, you focus on what's lost. And I understand Jesus is answering a question they haven't even asked out loud yet, but he knows they're going to get there. And so they're like, yeah, 100 sheep, lose one. I'm going after that one. Verse 7, Jesus says, I tell you in the same way. There will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Sinner is a person that broke a relationship with God. They were born with a broken relationship with God. Repentance means to change the way you think about God, to change the way you think about yourself. A change of behavior because of the way you changed the way you think about God and yourself. And can't you just see Jesus saying, oh, there'll be all this excitement for one that's lost because it's his heart. And I can't help but wonder, did he look over to the side in the direction of the Pharisees? Could he have 
made a statement, perhaps. You know, you guys consider yourselves found. But these people around me in close proximity pressing in, they know they're lost. And that might surprise you, but the Father, his heart is rejoicing over the fact that these are close. And he's more excited about what's happening right here than what's been happening for the last 10 years in your life. Because you've no longer seen a need for me, you grace graduates. And before they can ask another question, Jesus tells another story. Verse 8, or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. In first century Jewish culture, when a man has a daughter and she's promised to be married to someone else, the dad would give his daughter a set of coins. In this case, Jesus highlights 10. And she would tie those coins to something that she would wear. Often a bracelet, maybe a necklace. Um, it could be a headband. And what would happen is that piece of jewelry with 10 coins would be a promise to the man that would marry her. That when he would marry her, he would also get the coins. So in a sense, there's kind of a twist. I know she's mean. I know she's ugly. But you get the 10 coins, all right? <laughs> so imagine this lady has 10 coins and she looks in the mirror before she heads out. And she's only got nine. And where that other coin should have been, there's just a thread. It would be like going outside with an engagement ring and the diamond's missing. She ain't going out until she finds it. Verse 8, doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it? When she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. Once again, everyone in the audience thinking, oh yeah, you bet. That's what I'd do. I'd light a lamp. I'd sweep the floor. I'd look under the bed. I'd look everywhere. I would do all I can to find that one because it's what matters the most. And once again, Jesus is reminding them, when you lose something, you focus on what's lost. And everyone is just nodding in agreement. Kind of hard to argue with, isn't it? She wouldn't dare leave that house without that one. Verse 10, in the same way, I tell you, Jesus says, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So the audience is thinking to themselves, okay, I think I know what's going on here. When he does these parables, somebody's always God. Somebody's always me. And as I do the math, um, I guess God is the shepherd. Tax collectors are thinking, well, we got it together. I guess we're those 99 sheep. Got our stuff together. Um, Pharisees are thinking that. Tax collectors are thinking, well, I'm probably the one. I'm normally not in this situation, but I'm probably here. And then they're thinking even more. Pharisees are thinking, you know what? We're, we're probably the nine coins. Uh, we got it together. We're tax collectors. I, I'm probably, probably the one coin that's been lost. And, and both groups, the tax collectors, the sinners, and, and the religious, they're thinking, you know what? I, we're connecting the dots on this deal. Obviously, what's lost, um, it matters to God. It matters a lot to, to God. It's, it's like uh, that lost sheep. It's like that lost coin. It, what's lost parallels with people. And you can just imagine at that moment, the tax collector presses in and he begins to think, now wait a minute. I'm not lost. I'm right here. <laughs> He's thinking to himself, Jesus is teaching me. Like I'm in close proximity to the one that claims to be God. The most righteous person on the planet, God himself. But again, before anyone asks a question to Jesus in this setting, he launches into another story. 
And this story is where we will spend the next three weeks. Next week is the wayward son. The following week is the loving father. And the final week, the older brother. Um, To save time today, I thought the best approach instead of reading the remainder of Luke 15 from the text, because we'll spend so much time there, is reading an adapted version from Philip Yancey's What's So Amazing About Grace, where he takes his turn capturing what Jesus told the audience, and I pray your heart goes there too. A young girl grows up on a cherry orchard just above Traverse City, Michigan. Her parents, a bit old-fashioned, overreact to her nose ring, the music she listens to, and the length of her shirts. She pushes back on the rules, usually ending up grounded. I hate you, she screams at her father when he knocks on the door. After an argument, that night she acts on a plan that she mentally rehearsed over and over. She decides to run away. She's visited Detroit once before for a baseball game, but she knows the top stories circulating through Traverse City are about the gang violence and the drugs in downtown Detroit. She figures it's the last place her parents will look. She doesn't have much on her when she arrives. Her plan never made it past getting out of the house to Detroit. Her second day, she's walking around downtown. She meets a guy who drives the nicest car she's ever seen. He's dressed professionally. He's polite. And after talking a little bit, he offers her a ride to grab lunch together. When he finds out she doesn't have anywhere to stay, he books her a place of her own. She's getting anxious about what to do next. He gives her some pills that calm her down faster than anything her parents ever did. She thinks they were just trying to control her, and she's pretty proud of how she's taking care of herself. She carries that confidence over the next few months and into a year. The man that helped her so much, she calls him boss. He teaches her how to make guys like her since she... Since she's underage, the guys he introduces to her are willing to pay a premium to spend time with her. She's getting paid enough to live in a penthouse with room service. One morning, she's scrolling on her fake Instagram account. And an old picture of her pops up with a caption asking if anyone had seen her. Her anxiety spikes, but by now she has blonde hair. New makeup and body piercings. Nobody would mistake her for the child in the picture besides... Most of her friends now are runaways who don't want to be found either. After a year, she starts getting sick. The boss isn't polite anymore. He's done with her. He can't take any risks. Can't offer a sick girl, he says. Within days, she's living on the streets with nothing. She can still make a little cash on some nights, but it all goes to more pills. She struggles to find warmth at night as the seasons change, sleeping on metal grates outside the big department stores, hoping to feel a gust of heat. Actually, you can't really call it sleeping. She always has to be ready to run. The circles under her eyes deepen. Her cough worsens. One night, staring up at the Detroit skyline, she realizes she doesn't really feel like a woman of the world anymore. She feels lost, alone. Tears begin streaming down her face. She curls up tighter on the bench, watching the car speed by. A memory shakes loose. She remembers May in Traverse City. Cherry blossoms everywhere in her golden retriever, chasing a tennis ball off the back porch. Why did I leave, she says to herself. My dog at home eats better than I do now. Pain rips through her heart. She's breaking down. All she wants is to be home again. A man and woman are walking by, probably on a date. 
She asks if she can borrow one of their phones for just a minute. She dials one of the only numbers she knows by heart. She keeps getting voicemail. Finally, on the third try, she decides to leave a message. Dad, Mom, it's, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm going to try the bus station right up your way. I'll get there by midnight tomorrow. If you guys aren't there, I'll just keep riding. As the landscape flashes by on her seven-hour bus ride, she realized the flaws in her plan. What if her parents don't listen to the message? What if they're out of town they can't get there? Even if they are home, they probably are so mad and hurt by what she did, they don't want her there anyway. Her thoughts bounce back and forth between worries and the speech she's preparing for her dad. Dad, I'm sorry. I know it was wrong. It's not your fault. It's mine. Can you forgive me? She says the words over and over her throat tightening even as she rehearses them. She hasn't apologized to anyone in years. As she looks out the window, she sees the leaves are changing, some falling to the pavement, rubbed worn by thousands of tires. Every so often, she sees a road sign with the mileage to Traverse City. As the miles get lower, her anxiety gets higher. When the bus finally rolls into her hometown, the air brakes hissing in protest. The driver announces they have 15 minutes at the stop. 15 minutes to decide her life. She checks herself in a compact mirror, smooths her hair, tries to pinch some color into her cheeks. She catches a glimpse of herself in the bus window reflection as she gets off. Will her parents know it's her? Are they even there? She steps off the bus, walks into the terminal, trying to keep her expectations low. Out of everything she imagined to happen, nothing prepared her for what she sees as the automatic doors close behind her. There, in the concrete walls and plastic chairs bus terminal of Traverse City, is a group of 40 brothers, sisters, great aunts, uncles, cousins, a grandmother, great-grandmother. They're all wearing goofy party hats and blowing noisemakers, and taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a banner that reads, Welcome Home. Her dad breaks away from the crowd and moves toward her. She stares out through the tears built up in her eyes and begins her memorized speech. Dad, I'm sorry. I know. And he interrupts her. Hush, honey. We've got no time for that. No time for apologize. You're going to be late for the party. It's all waiting for you at home. I said this last week. As followers of Jesus, one day we will all be in the same room, sitting at the same table, celebrating Jesus. Are you ready? What if we started behaving like the party already started? And everyone is invited. And on behalf of everyone being invited, some of you are bothered by that. Do you realize we've all been prodigals? We're going to see this more next week, I promise you. But understand, we've all pursued something far from God in a distant land away from home. In other words, at one time, everyone in this room was lost. Some are lost right now. And if you're one of those that's lost right now, you consider yourself um, either unrighteous, non-religious, or maybe ungodly, and you hear the word lost and it bothers you, 
You think it's an insult? Don't let it be. Because understand this. When God considers someone lost, it's because he considers them valuable. That's the story. We all need to think about this. Seriously, Severites. Just think how valuable a soul must be when both God and the devil are after it. A hundred years from today, every one of us in this room will be alive in one of two places, heaven or hell. And the only things from earth we'll see in heaven are people who came home to Jesus. And on behalf of everyone in the room that does not yet know him, if today's just a tease, I pray you come back. And if you have been close to Jesus, but now you're far, today is just a tease, but I want you to come back because I want you to understand it is not too late to come home. And that's why we gather on Sundays. Father, I pray that this would be at the heart of this church. This gathering that is here to reflect Jesus. The hands, the feet, the eyes, the ears of Jesus. God, I love the fact that as you walked on earth, you were perfect. And people that were notoriously imperfect loved being around you. And you came for them. Father, may those of us that have been changed the prodigals that have come home, may we have the heart of the Father. I pray in this service that we would take this message serious and Sundays would not be the same. It wouldn't be a holy huddle. It would be a holy huddle where we are riveted on seeking the lost. And Father, I pray that that would be the same in the next service and then especially tonight as things launch back. God, I pray for anyone in this room that does not know you. They consider themselves non-religious, not righteous, ungodly. I pray that they would realize, even in this story, that if they could go back to the first century, they would have liked you. And they would have seen that not only do you love them, but you would have liked them. And for those that are far from home, find themselves running to a distant land. I pray that we would remember it is not too late to come home.